0: Of Scripture, I took uh, just under two years ago on my first Sunday as your senior pastor, and I felt like this is where we should go back to again this morning. And uh, as we walk into this text, what we find here is the the context of what we're dealing with is the Lord is with His disciples at the Last Supper, and they are gathered around the table and they're enjoying this time together and. They know that there is something different about this moment, but the apostles are still in denial. Jesus just finished declaring that Judas would betray him. He tells them that he's going to go away. He tells Peter that he will deny him three times this evening. These men are about to lose everything that they had dreamed of for the last three and a half years. Everything they thought they were going to have in this immediate kingdom is now being taken from them. The pain of disappointment is real. The pain of betrayal, it seems almost palpable that the loss of death is just in front of them and the, the fear of dying is about to grip their soul. When Jesus said he was going away, Peter asked him, where are you going? Look at verse number 36 of chapter 13, and Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? And Jesus answered, whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. And Peter in his mind here has no concept of the Lord going anywhere but to another geographical location. It's almost as if he said, well, Lord, are you, are you going on vacation? We'll go with you. Are you going to do some work? We'll go with you. Where, where are you going? Are you going to Galilee? Are you going to Jerusalem? Where do you want to go? We'll go with you. And Peter honestly and sincerely wanted to go where he was going, but he had no concept as to where the Lord was going. You understand the Lord was going into his passion and he was about to die. He had no concept of a dying savior. And we've looked at this through our study in Mark and how that the Messiah, the Messiah was preaching the fact that he would be crucified and he would be buried and we'd rise again. And yet time and time again as he preached that, they still protested and said, no, Lord, be it far from you. No, Lord, it's not going to happen. Can we sit on your right hand and your left hand? They're thinking all the time of a physical kingdom. And here the Lord is saying, you can't come with me. They didn't understand a dying Savior, and even though Christ had told them he would die, they're still missing it. You see, Jesus saw the storm was coming and was concerned for their troubled hearts, and he gives them the admonition. I said in the first hour, and I remind us again, has it ever dawned on you that nothing's ever dawned on God? Nothing's caught God by surprise. Nothing has caught him flat-footed. God is the God of all things and everyone. He is in control. And here he looks at a group of worried, concerned, even confused men who eventually, in just a few short days, are going to turn the world upside down. They're going to change everything. And yet the Lord, after having taught them and taught them and taught them, aren't you glad we see his patience on display? Because then he gathers this group of men around them and he looks at them and he says, let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. Even though he knows the storm, he knows the disciples need the words of encouragement that he's, come, that he's giving to them. I don't know why he felt these words were needed. We understand he knows all things, but maybe it was the look on their face when he had just given them the message that Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Maybe they're looking at Peter like, what's the deal, Peter? And he says, let not your heart be troubled. And he gives them this comfort. It was this knowledge and his care for them in their nature and where they were that he gives them these three words in this text that I want to point out to you in the very first verse. He says, troubled, heart, and you. I want you to see those three words in highlight this morning. Number one, troubled. He said, let not your heart be troubled. The word troubled here is to be hurried and confused be rushed about in turmoil and how many of you you felt like at some time in your life that there's been moments to where your heart was like the tempest of a sea and it was tossed this way and that from moment to moment and you can't make heads or tails of what's going on or who even is on your side. And like the troubling of a sea, it is being tossed about back and forth. And he looked at them, he says, do not let your heart be troubled. Now, he is not telling them or us that somehow or another we're supposed to face everything with a stoic ignoring of personal pain. He's not saying to you this morning that if you're going through a heartbreaking relationship end or you're going through a job loss or you've lost a loved one or maybe just the circumstances of our country today have you torn up, that somehow or another you you have to act as if you have no pain. No, that's not what he's saying at all. Even Jesus, when he stood at the tomb of Lazarus, I'm so glad the scripture records those short words when he says, and Jesus wept. Because our Lord's heart was burdened by what he saw in that moment and the tears flowed from his eyes. And we see his humanity and we see his compassion and we see his goodness to come to this feckless group of men and say, let not your hearts be troubled. Don't let it be troubled. Don't let it be tossed about. They were troubled over Christ's departure, no doubt. I go away. Where are you going? Well, we can't come with you. You can't come with me right now. They were, they were troubled over their own betrayal. Judas is said that he is, it is said of Judas in verse chapter 13, 21, that he would betray him. And then in thirteen thirty eight, Peter is told, tonight you'll deny me three times. And then in Matthew 26, 31, he says, the shepherd will be smitten and all the sheep will scatter. And he said, all of you are going to deny me. All of you are going to forsake me. They're troubled over Christ's departure, over their betrayal, over the unknown future. What does tomorrow even hold? What's tomorrow even look like? The loss of what they thought they had. You see, they still were thinking of that powerful king taking on the throne and doing away with Rome's oppression. I mean, who's going to stand up to a king who can raise the dead? I mean, you think about a king who can feed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fishes. And can raise the dead. That alone, right there, wins any battle you go into. There's no need for supply chains, there's no need for armor. All we need is Jesus standing back, raising up fallen soldiers, and feeding us with five loaves and two fishes. We can march on any army and win. And here they are thinking he's going to come in and overthrow Rome, and everything is being set aside. And we know they're still thinking of a physical kingdom because just hours before this, John and James have said, Can we sit at your right hand and your left hand? He looks at them and he says, Let not your heart be troubled. Your heart. In our modern understanding of the word heart, we've taken and separated the mind and the heart from one another. And now the mind is one thing and the heart is another, and, and we get the idea that somehow or another the heart is the seat of the emotion, and the mind is our intellect, and we've separated those things. But that was not the case when this is being written, is the heart and the mind were all of one. The heart and the mind were connected, and when you read through Scripture, you're going to have a hard time distinguishing between the two even though the words are used so often they're used interchangeably that our heart and our mind are one because we feel and we think and all of those things are messed up here how many of you understand that when your heart is broken your head is broken too that when you're hurting here you can't think very well here and by the way there's good there's good good truth to the fact that when your heart is broken it's a bad time to make decisions Because we're not capable of doing that. Because we're broken of heart, we're broken of mind as well. And he's saying, do not let the seat of your emotion, the seat of your intellect, the way you think about things, all of those things interacting together, do not let your heart be troubled. Matthew Henry said, do not let your heart be like the sea that cannot rest. Rest is a wonderful word. It's a wonderful ability to be able to just rest. And know that everything's all right when I rest. The Bible tells us in Psalm 42, hope thou in God. Hope thou in God. Psalms 4 and verse number 8, he said, I will lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. This morning, rest only comes and is always dependent on the ability to trust that everything's okay. You ever wonder what it means to rest and be able to rest well and know that trust and rest are contingent upon each other? Then you just need to go to the first night of a a summer camp. The first night of summer camp is a bad time to go to sleep first because somebody's going to prank you if you do. You want to stay awake you want to sleep with one eye open. When I went to camp, when the, I was my senior year of camp, and I got the guys together, the seniors in the cabin, and we just looked at the junior hires, and we said, here's the deal. You may prank us tonight, but you're going to be tired at the end of the week, and we will pay you back. You will go to sleep before us at the end of the week. And they left us alone. It was a really good really good thing. They didn't mess with us. You go to sleep first, you're going to sleep uneasy because they're coming at you. Years ago, Susie and I were, uh, in, we're still living in Ohio, and we had a... Uh, we had an evening where it was just her and I at home, and the kids were gone, and and um, we were in the living room, and we were watching some TV, and we fell asleep in a movie, and like, you know, you think, hey, we're going to watch a movie, and you don't make it through it because you just fall asleep, and so we're out, and we're sleeping on the couch, and I woke up with kind of a pinch in the neck, and I, I'm like, babe, I'm going to go to bed, and she's like, I'll be in in a minute, and so I went in there, and I, I climbed into bed, and I covered up, and, and I was about out, you know, and you have that where you're about halfway in, halfway out, you know, and... I hear Sue moving through the house and I'm like okay well that's Sue she's fine and so she goes down to the other end of the house and turning off some lights and she comes walking back toward the bedroom and as she's walking through the living room back toward our bedroom she gets about halfway from the kids room to our room and then I hear this scream like I've not heard before and Mike there's a man in the house and then she just dives into the room and I was awake at that point, I woke up very quickly and um, I jumped up and I, I, I ran to my closet and, and grabbed a defensive weapon and forgot that you had to have the other things to put in the defensive weapon and, uh, and so I was standing there at the door with no bullets and a gun and then I was like, oh, I guess I should get those and so I, I'm, I'm acting all tough and I go back and I'm like, I have my bullets now, don't come in here, you know. And uh, we're scared to death. Our, everybody's awake. I mean, we're, we're just wide awake right now. And we start walking through the house. And I didn't call the police. We lived out in the country anyway. And I've always wondered why I didn't call the police. But it would have taken an hour for them to get there. But I, 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 I went through the house. And I'm checking and seeing if anybody's there. There's nobody in the house. And, uh, and so we we're, we're, were trying to go back to sleep. And so we turn the lights off in the house. And we come walking through the living room again. And Sue goes, I saw him. He was standing right there by that door. And as we were standing there, at that moment, she looked over, and the new thermostat we had put in had a blue light on it that cast a shadow on the wall. And she told me, she goes, when I moved, it moved with me. And when I stopped, it stopped. (laughs) And I thought he was chasing me. (laughs) And needless to say, we did not rest well that night. We did not trust uh, the next movie we stayed awake for. Um, Rest is determined upon trust. How many of you know what it feels like to, as a little child, to have been afraid? And to go to mom or dad and to climb into their arms and just that feeling of going, I think Jesus is saying to his apostles and he's saying to us, let not your heart be troubled. Or if we could put it in the positive, let your heart say, oh. because we can rest that he is in control. I will lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. Then he says, let not your heart be troubled. He said, let not your heart be troubled. You. You. It was a specific direction to the people that were in front of them. And it's as if he's saying, you and you of all people should not be troubled. You and you of all people should know where your foundation rests. Hey, you've walked with me for the last three and a half years, John. Peter, you know what we've gone through. You walked on the water with me. You've seen me raise the dead. You've seen me open blinded eyes. You've seen me take the, the, the cripple and raise uh, him, him up to be able to walk again. You've seen me cast out demons. And so you men, you of all men, should not be troubled. Because you know who I am. You know what I've done. And I would say this morning, church, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what burden you carry. And some of you, I do know your burdens, and I do know what you're going through. And I watch you sing on Sunday morning, and I rejoice at your testimony of God's faithfulness to you, even in the valley. But I would say to you, you of all people, let not your heart be troubled, because we have a hope that transcends this world. We rest in him. Let not your heart be troubled. Yes, we grieve, but we sorrow not as others which have no hope. We we stand upon a sure foundation. So he says, Let not your heart be troubled. What was Jesus saying? I think he was saying, I'm not troubled. I'm not troubled. We don't find Jesus flinching, we don't find him running in fear. We find him walking faithfully toward the call of his father. He thinks he's looking at these men and he's declaring to them, I'm not troubled. Pilate is not a threat to me. Herod has no power that has not been given him. Judas cannot decide my end. The Sanhedrin is under my father's control. You see, he Jesus is walking out the providential plan of his father. He's not running from circumstances. He's not hiding from circumstances, but he's walking in what God has ordained. And here's the thing, when we stand... here today, we can say, this is the day the Lord hath made, we will rejoice and be glad in it. You know the song. But I got news for you. Jesus wasn't, when those words were written by the psalmist, he's not writing words to us in a sunny, shiny day. Do you know what those words are referring to? They're referring to the crucifixion. They're referring to the day when the darkest day of human history was also the greatest day of human history. Because though in that day it was the most troubled time these men had ever experienced up to this point, he's saying to them, Let not your heart be troubled because you and I look back, and though it was their darkest day, it's our greatest hope that Christ was crucified and that he rose again. Let not your heart be troubled. Why? What is the remedy for this coming trouble? What is the remedy for us today as we walk through uncertain times and an uncertain world and a shaking time and we say, well, What's next? How do we do this? What do we, what do we hold on to? And he gives us this, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. And some would word this and they would. we almost read into our own language in this, if you believe in God, believe also in me. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that at all. He's making two imperative statements here. He's saying, you believe in God, you believe in me. He's saying, Believe in God, believe in me. Believe in God, believe in me. There are two imperatives. These are uh, inseparable truths. A belief in God alone does not settle my heart. A belief in God by himself is not going to be grounds for me to sleep well at night. Because if all we have is a God who created it and set up rules for us to follow, then everyone here is guilty of breaking those rules and we are facing sure judgment. There is no rest for us apart from Christ. But when he says, believe in God, believe in me, he's pointing us to the hope that we have. To believe in God who is holy and just and to deny Christ is to believe a false God. You see, Christ is the fullness of the Godhead bodily, Colossians chapter 2. The Bible tells us that the nature of God is revealed in the perfection of the person of Jesus Christ, Hebrews 1.1. We say believe in God, believe in me. So to believe means to rest your confidence in a person or thing in a way that changes your presence with expectation of future promise. In other words, I'm going to change the way I live because what I believe is true about God. I'm going to believe that God is in control, and I'm going to believe that Jesus Christ is my Savior, and that is my hope, and that is where I set my confidence and my rest in. See, it is this belief that sustains us in the times between the promise and reality. How many of you believe the reality this morning is that God rules in the affairs of men? <clears throat> How many believe this morning that he will rule and reign? And we rest in that truth. The promise is that he does rule and reign and that he will rule and reign. And that promise, that reality is going to be revealed one day. I, I don't know when that day is going to be. You don't know when. If anybody tells you they do, don't give them any money, all right? Uh, they don't know when that day's coming. But the reality is, one day, that reality will be here. And we have the faith and the hope of believing God and believing in his promises in between now and then. You see, it is the belief that sustains us in this time between the promises and the reality. You see, without Christ, we have no hope of restoration to God. It is only in Christ that we have hope. So the commands, the, both the commands are imperatives. Believe in God. Believe in me. And we have this command in front of us. He says, then, in my Father's house, in my Father's house are many mansions. When I was a kid, we would sing the song, I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. Anybody ever heard that one? Yeah, a few of you. We would sing those songs, and I think that's true. One day I'm going to be there, and it's going to be something beyond my wildest dreams. But here, the thing that is in focus is not the quality of our dwelling but the fact that there is a place for us. What we see here is a promise that there is a dwelling place with God. The quality of the dwelling is not the issue in view here, but the quality or the quantity of the places. There is a place for you. There is a place for me. We've been invited to the table. He's saying, hey, there's room for you. There is a place by him that he's inviting us to through the work of Jesus Christ. Believe in God. Believe in me. In my Father's house, there's a place at the table for you. This is the promise we have. How I many you have ever felt left out of something before? The awkward feeling and it painful feeling at times. Remember as a young boy, I was in seventh grade and we got the chance to go off to summer camp for the first time with the school. And um, I was going away for five, six days. And, and, and that day, the thing that was the cool thing was high top tennis shoes. And um, we would spend a lot of money on high top tennis shoes. A lot of money. But I didn't know that. I, I, my dad and mom, they said, look, if you want something more than what we're getting you, then you get some work and you go buy it. And I'm like, okay. And so I went and cut some grass and I had a few dollars in my pocket and I thought I got to have some high top tennis shoes because that will help me fit in at school. So I went down to Kmart and I bought me a pair of black and white and fluorescent orange high top tennis shoes. And they had a tongue on it that was about that big that hung out of the top of my pants. And I thought they were the coolest. They were Spalding brand. I don't even know if Spalding makes tennis shoes anymore. But I had this, I thought, the coolest set of tennis shoes that I'd ever bought in my life. And I put them on to go to school. And man, I come walking in, and I didn't walk with my shoulders forward. I walked with my feet forward everywhere I went. I wanted everybody to see my shoes. I wanted them to know that, man, I got the high tops. I fit into your group now. Look at my high tops. And I'm showing them off everywhere. I'm thinking, man, I've got an inroad now. I can sit at the cool table. I can go and hang out with the cool kids. And I was so proud of those shoes. Man, I thought they were the greatest thing in the whole world. I remember walking up, and there's a group of the cool kids at school. And I walked up, and Wade Norton was there, and I walked up, and I'm like, hey, guys, what's going on? See my shoes? And I'm standing there with them, and, and uh, Wade goes, Mike, nobody invited you over here, man. Go away and leave us alone. And I was like, don't you see my shoes? I mean, I'm supposed to be accepted because of my shoes. And I remember walking away and feeling bad, tawny wash, a little girl in our school. She said, Nate, hey, uh, don't, don't be mean to him, Wade. And as I'm walking away, I heard him say, "Ah, he just thinks he's cool with those cheap Kmart shoes. And I was like, oh, all the air went out of my standing at that moment. I thought I had some cool shoes. I didn't know that you weren't supposed to buy them at Kmart. I didn't know that Spalding wasn't the brand. I had no idea. And I no longer had any standing, and it was all gone, and I felt on the outside. And everybody here has been in a moment where you've been on the outside looking in. But I'm glad to say because of Jesus Christ, there is room at the table. And we are welcomed into fellowship. And nobody is measured by what we wear or what we accomplish. You see, Christianity has never been about what you've done. It's always been about what he's done. He's bore our grief. He carried our sorrow. There is room at the table for me, and there is a place by him in our Father's house. We all have fears of not being accepted. And yet Jesus is unequivocally declaring to us today that there is room at the table. He said, if it were not true, I would have told you. I think just in short, he's saying, guys, I've been truthful with you up to this point. I wouldn't change that now. I'm gonna be on the level with you guys. He's been nothing but straightforward. He's told them of what he's doing. And he says, hey guys, I go to prepare a place for you. I've often listened to this, read this, and I've thought, you know, uh, well, we even make statements like this. You know, uh, he built, he, he made the earth in seven days and he's been gone for 2,000 years. Heaven must be amazing, right? And I I agree that he has gone to heaven to prepare a place for us. And I do believe that one day he is going to rule and reign here. But here's the reality. It didn't take him 2,000 years or two minutes to prepare a place. It's not a timeline that he needs to get all the fixtures ready for us. It's not as if he's like, oh, no, let's get that straightened out before they show up. He's not rushed about that, all right, guys? What is he saying? I go to prepare a place for you. Remember what he said to Peter in the previous chapter, I'm going away and where I go, you cannot come. But one day, you'll be able to come to where I'm going. And what is he talking about? I believe he's talking about his crucifixion. I go to the cross to prepare a place for you. I go to the grave to prepare a place for you. I go to the resurrection to prepare a place for you. And yes, I am going to be with my Father, and I will come again and receive you unto myself. He said, I'm going through to knock down all the obstacles for you to be with us. He is opening the door. For us to be at fellowship with him. He said that where I am, not a geographical location, but a relational location. Where I am, there you may be also. Aren't you glad that he walks with us and he talks with us and he tells us that we're his own? And that the relation is real. It's not just imaginary. And yes, the storms of life come. And yes, the failures of our own heart, they hinder us from seeing it. And yes, all of the confusion of this world can cloud all that away. But when you blow all that smoke away and you push all that confusion and you turn down all that volume, we still know that there is a place by him for us because of where he went and what he did. See, Jesus is one with the Father and abode with him. He is seated at the table and Jesus is saying, I go to make it possible for you to be with me and the Father. You see, we can only be with him because of the work of Christ that was accomplished when he went away. Thomas asked the question, verse number five, and Jesus, Thomas said unto the Lord, we know not whither thou goest and how can we know the way? How can we know the way? What a question. How how can we possibly know that way? And this is not an uncommon question. Did not Pilate ask in just a few verses from now when he says, what is truth? How can we know the truth? How can we know the way? Thomas is asking a question that reveals his overwhelmed state. I don't know where you're going, and I don't know how to get there. I don't know what's happening right now. And tell us what to do. The fear of the unknown is real to all human hearts. We do not see the beginning from the end. We do not know what tomorrow holds. The questions that come into our mind in every tragedy, in every heartache, in every time of disappointment, we ask these questions, why, what, when, how, who, what's next? All of these swirl into our mind, yet if we are to set ourselves out to answer all of these questions, we will never cease to be troubled. We will live with troubled minds and troubled hearts because you're not going to answer them all with your own intellect and the ability to explore them all. Just the number of Facebook posts alone, you don't have time to read them all. And we can sit there almost overwhelmed of maybe if I had a little more information, a little more knowledge, I could solve the problems of this world. The reality is there is too much to know. Listen to all this. We were just to explore the sciences, let's, let's just look at a few, botany, astronomy, chemistry, uh, anatomy, biology, molecular biology, physics, and we would have enough engineering degrees in our church alone that it would take you a lifetime to master, there are enough disciplines of the men and the ladies in this room that we would never get to the end or the, the, the fullness of the knowledge that you have in your own field, then that's just the sciences, what about history? Ancient history, we could study the Romans, the Huns, the Greeks, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Syrians. We could go to modern history and study the history of England and Spain and France. And we could look at American history alone and spend years of study and never uh, sum it all up. There's more knowledge than we could ever put together. The answer is we cannot know by searching in the dark. We cannot know by searching out all the information and putting it all together and then summing it all up and saying, hey, I put all the information there is to know in one group of things and now I've got to sum it all up and I know the answer. We couldn't do it if we tried the Library of Congress. One library, 170 million items. That's a lot of stuff to study, folks. If you were to live 100 years and you could read the day you were born, that would, be a, that would be a pretty good challenge anyway. You'd have to look at 1.7 million things a year. You'd have to look the 141,666 items a month, 4,722 things a day, 196 uh, an hour, and 3.2 a minute. Now, you may be a fast reader, but that's fast. And that's to get through the information that is contained in one library in one country on one continent how can we know the way how could we know how can and and Thomas is asking this question of a settledness how can we say our hearts are not troubled when we don't even know where you're going and we don't even know how to come to that knowledge how can we know it's as if Thomas is saying we need someone who knows everything And sees all things and can determine the beginning from the end and everything that is in between. If that person could come on the scene in perfection and break it all down for us. And just tell us what do we need to know that would cause us to be settled and letting not our hearts be troubled. He said, I'm so glad this morning that Jesus simplified it all for us. You see, if we knew nothing else but know this this morning. If you understand no other mystery of life, understand this mystery. If you believe only one thing, then believe this. When Jesus stood before his apostles that day, his words echoed throughout all the halls of learning in every culture and every tribe of mankind. Every science lab, these words echo through time. And every library of every age trembles beneath this truth. When Jesus stood and looked at a group of feckless souls soldier a a fisherman who were about to change the world and he says let not your heart be troubled and Thomas goes why and he said because I am the way the truth and the life no man cometh to the father but by me so therefore let not your heart be troubled you can't know all the information you can't have all the answers Jesus is the answer and we rest in that this morning If I could, we, in that this morning. Because Jesus is our hope. This morning, church, let not your heart be troubled. The work is ahead of us. There's people you're going to walk by today that need to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And they need to know that our King is still on the throne. Let's bow our heads this morning. Father, we thank you for the sufficiency of your word. Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you would do a work in the hearts of our people this morning. Holy Spirit of God, give us a, a passion and a desire to pursue you and you alone. Father, I think of the songwriter as though I forget him and wander away. Still, he doth love me wherever I stray, and back to his dear loving.